0: Kathy.
1: and I'm Justin and, and this, this is, is ComicsVerse. Comics-verse. Thank you for listening to another Comics First podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Kathleen Wisniewski. Hello. And Tom Bacon. Hello. And uh, we are here with a very special guest, Marvel.com writer Tim Stevens. Hello. If you guys remember um, to The Daily Show, to the time of the writer strike, Jon Stewart did some of the show without writers, and that's improv a little bit. Sadly, I'm going to have to rely on some improv skills today because oh. <laughs> <laughs> we are slightly scriptless, but thanks to Tim Stevens, we have a wonderful, set up a script and we are going to get into that in one second but just a reminder you can find us on the web at comicsfirst.com, on twitter at, at @comicsfirst, on facebook at facebook.com slash comicsfirst on youtube at, at youtube.com slash first tv and please check out our video reviews because we've been working very hard to bring them to you every single week and again check out our podcast comicsfirst.com slash podcast and let's get to that script so tim stevens is a freelance writer who is also pursuing his E, correct which is different than the phd me. that is correct which I just learned today and I sh- should be embarrassed because I'm not a very good scholar I guess <laughs> um, but you can most often catch his work at the Marvel Comics homepage marvel.com his writing runs the gamut from pop culture to politics to long form meditations on life and death and as we say you know the fun stuff <laughs> and um, he's also an incredible podcast guest as we will soon find out I am truly excellent <laughs> and just a little hint at that and so we are going to start today discussing Daredevil and the many things themes in Mark Wade's Daredevil. So we've started to put it into segments and first we wanted to ask Tim, how did you first encounter Daredevil?
2: Um, Actually, the first time I quote unquote met Daredevil was in a hotel room in Florida. I was 10 or 11 years old and the trial of the Incredible Hulk was on television, uh, which was this old TV movie or old now certainly aged then and there is a black suited uh, Daredevil in the movie. And all I remember now is that one of his lines was your knife is is noisy but i was instantly intrigued and um from there he's become my favorite character so that's how the journey began very cool
3: i'd actually forgotten that movie yeah thanks for reminding me of it
1: Well, I apologize, I guess. (laughs) It's great.
2: I
3: loved
1: it. (laughs) Oh, good. I actually remember the image of the guy who played Bruce Banner and then the skull. Yeah. Like on the other side. I just remember that like that was the commercial break.
2: Yeah. And John Rhys Davies was kingpin with a full head of hair.
1: Yes. That I did not remember. (laughs) Yep. How did Hulk die in that too? He just kind of like fell really far right at the end.
2: I believe so. And then he shows up, of course, with Thor in uh, the following movie, which is the death of the Incredible Hulk. I think it's called.
1: Oh, Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Oh, who knew? Okay. Kathy, do you remember any of this stuff? No, I do not. <laughs> what was your first encounter with Daredevil?
0: I think it might have been pretty uh, recently. I, I was, of course, uh, aware of Daredevil when I was younger, but I think probably the first full issue I ever read would have been one of Mark Wade's Daredevils, which is a really good place to yeah, start. Absolutely.
1: So, yeah. uh, Tom,
3: what about you? The Man Without Fear miniseries in the '90s. I remember just picking that up and absolutely loving the art. Mm and that hooked me on the character for a little while. I read him during the Fall from Grace plotline, and i got to be honest, he never massively gripped me. Um, I was much more an X-Men guy. So while I kept a bit of an eye on him, I sort of drifted in and out of Daredevil comics myself.
1: I have to say, I did the same. And, you know, we went back and we tried to find some issues from volume one, mm-hmm. and we couldn't find them on the internet or on comicsology, which was unfortunate. But yeah. um, I really wanted to see how the progression of his character. And, Tim, you were saying that Wade's run is quite different from how we saw him at the end of volume two? Yeah, b- by the end of volume two, it's
2: probably as dark as the characters ever gotten. It concludes um, Andy Diggle is writing the title at the time, and then there's a short limited series also written by Andy Diggle in between volume two and the launch of volume three. And we see Daredevil possessed by a demon from the hand. He slays Bullseye while being possessed. He takes over and claims dominion over Hell's Kitchen. It's it's as dark and as down as we've ever seen Daredevil get. And then he shows up, as we know, having checked out the first issue, and he is a uh, bullion in comparison. He is um, bright and bouncy and making out with brides on their wedding day. So it's a very jarring take initially. I have to say, I was very
1: shocked by that when he did that. Yeah. It
3: made me laugh. It just <laughs> felt, it reminded me of some of the sort of swashbuckler issues that I've read from Daredevil in the in the 70s time. It just made me sit
1: there laughing did that scene. So how did he become your favorite character, Tom? That's a good question. Uh, I just
2: think I was attracted to the idea of him as someone who was overcoming a disability in this case is blindness not just to be you know a day-to-day person but somebody who was literally protecting everyone you know um, was not just satisfied keeping pace but was in fact putting on a costume and fighting crime you know I didn't grow up with any disabilities or anything like that but that was incredibly intriguing and uh, incredibly engaging for me and I just connected with that and then I don't know I just was sold on the character Um, a friend of mine growing up his dad had comics and he had a random issue. Issue of Born Again Saga, the second to last issue of that arc, and it was incredible. And between that and that sort of half remembered memory of watching uh, a TV movie in a hotel in, in Florida, the connection was made and I've just been stuck ever since. What do you
1: think makes him stand out from other Marvel characters? Um, Specifically, <clears throat> like the non X Men Avengery characters.
2: Sure. Uh, well, part of it is he's very connected not just to New York City but a specific neighborhood in New York Mm -hmm. City um, Hell's Kitchen which in modern New York City doesn't exist in that same way anymore you know Hell's Kitchen is now called Chelsea and is a a very up and coming (laughs) neighborhood but he was specifically grounded in that neighborhood you know Spider-Man came from Queens Forest Hills but he was all over the city Mm -hmm. and Daredevil had carved out this one niche and also you know starting with the Miller era he had an identity that was much different from the other heroes that he was both Fantastical and very grounded at the same time. And you didn't tend to see that balance with other heroes. You know, either they were like the X Men, who were mutants, obviously, but had powers and fought in space and all over the globe or there was somebody like punisher who you know solved every problem with two guns and daredevil kind of bridged that gap that he was unquestionably a superpower he's had superpowers but at the same time he was fighting a battle block by block in his neighborhood
1: essentially and uh, does he strike you as more logical than some of the other superheroes i'm sort of thinking of the death of gene de wolf when did you read that with us kathy
0: yes i believe i did
1: and remember he was, like, against Spider-Man in that? Yeah. Did you have a chance to read that, too? Mm-hmm. And um, And Tom? Uh,
3: years ago, but I can't actually remember it at the all to be honest with you.
1: Okay. Um, just to give you a reminder, it pits sort of Spider Man and Daredevil at odds against each other, mm-hmm. but it sort of showed Daredevil. I don't know why I'm bringing this up because we didn't read it. It wasn't part of what we read, um, but it, it did show Daredevil in this sort of fatherly light, in this really logical light, and mm-hmm. um, as really a man of the law. And I, and I think that that might have separated him a little bit too. Absolutely.
2: I mean, it's interesting that that shows up more with other characters because when mm-hmm. you have the insight into Matt Murdock himself, you know, when he's the central character, you see a man who is very conflicted about being a lawyer as well as being a vigilante. Right. And believing very strongly in the law, but also stepping outside to solve problems within the law. Placed up against somebody, say, Daredevil. I mean, say, Spider-Man. It gives that legal edge more of a chance to shine than it does necessarily
1: in his own title. Anything to add, Kathy?
0: i just talking about Daredevil. These are really interesting dichotomies that he's standing on either side of. For him to be a vigilante who also totally believes in the law, there aren't that many opportunities really for superhero characters to have those arguments in a way that are actually meaningful. usually it's a a police officer character who doesn't show up very often and obviously you're supposed to agree with your favorite superhero character like, nah, whatever law can't do anything. Mm -hmm. But in the issues that we read, we frequently saw uh, Daredevil Doing things that would help Matt Murdoch with the cases that he was assisting people with. so It's kind of a, an interesting partnership that he had with himself on both sides of the law.
1: Absolutely, it's a very good point.
2: And there are times even where he is almost at odds with himself as well mm-hmm. that you see. And some of the issues that I, we tried to find that we couldn't from the Kessel Nord run, which is a really good but often forgotten arc uh, in the character's history. He starts off representing Mister Hyde, who he had actually brought down panels before because he believed that Mr. Hyde is a terrible human being and obviously a criminal but he didn't commit the specific crime in question. Oh. So as a lawyer he has to represent him sort of ethically and morally but as a crime fighter he also believes that this is
1: somebody who would be better off in jail. Yeah, it's like that dichotomy that you were talking about.
0: I wish we had read that one I'll, we'll have a look for it sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. That um, sounds really cool. It does. It Tim, how do you feel about such a big Daredevil, I almost said Nightwing, oh my gosh, since you're such a big and I'm not even a DC fan but since you're such a big Daredevil fan how do you feel about the? Uh, Netflix series coming out? Uh,
2: Well, I'm trying to control my excitement. I'm incredibly excited and there's (laughs) been some really great reviews in the past two days Mm -hmm. or so, but I'm trying to temper my excitement because I don't want it to explode.
1: Um, (laughs) But yeah, April 10th uh, is going to be a pretty exciting day. It's very soon, too. Yeah. So perfect timing for this podcast. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah, if Daredevil has come out by the time you listen to this, please let us know what you think on comicsverse.com and we'd love to have a conversation with you about it. And uh, one last thing is, what would you guys say is your favorite Daredevil arc. We'll start with you, Tim. Wow.
2: Uh, Definitely put me on the spot there. I mean, I think historically you can't beat Born Again, which is Frank Miller's last work on the title. That's incredible. Man Without Fear is probably the first time I absolutely had to have every issue of a story arc, and it's very much a a year one story to steal that term Mm -hmm. from another company. And the John Romita Jr. art's incredible, so that's another must-have. But I could literally go through and name one for almost every creator who's worked on the title, (laughs) so I'll cut it off with those two. But definitely, um, and given that they're both done by frank miller it kind of shows you the very beginning of daredevil through frank miller's eyes and his interpretations and the very end of his time with the book so
3: for me i have to say i loved the man without fear arc all these years on i still remember that arc so distinctively um the covers alone gripped me as a kid Mm. and just made that book special as you said tim the art was stunning in that series absolutely stunning um, but John Romita is a brilliant artist and I'm definitely a fan of his work at the same time some of the Mark Wade comics that you selected for the reading I found really really enjoyable and I really got into those I loved the twist at the end of the battle with Bullseye mm. where Daredevil's called a few friends yes. and I just I beamed at that moment it was such a perfect spot in the comic uh, so well done um, so I have to say I suspect some of this Mark Wade era is probably Probably going to be edging to one of the top ones.
2: I absolutely agree. And for fans of the Man Without Fear, I would direct you to the Netflix series. If you notice, the black costume that shows up at the end of Man Without Fear is very reminiscent of what he's wearing, at least at some point during the Netflix series. So Yeah, I've noticed. There might yeah. be some more homages in there. I'm not saying. Just saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys, that's going to bring us to a close for our first segment. And we'll be back talking about more Daredevil in just a second. <laughs> So we are back talking about Mark Wade's run on Daredevil, and we've got a few questions for our brand new guest, Tim Stevens, and my two lovely co-hosts, Kathy and Tom. And our first question is, given the abrupt change in personality Matt undergoes, do you find yourself siding with Foggy's interpretation of Matt losing his mind? And does the book sell the possibility of Matt's losing touch with his reality, Well, um, To start with me, I guess. Um, as, <laughs> as somebody who had
2: read the book for years, I'd be curious people who hadn't felt about it because for me it actually kind of worked because we've seen in the past Matt lose touch with reality in various ways and not necessarily be clued into it Initially, so to have Foggy question it does kind of put the same thing on the narrator is, or I'm sorry, on the reader. If Matt has been an unreliable narrator the whole time, or if what we're seeing through his eyes is accurate, pardon the pun. But I'd be interested to hear from you guys who haven't followed the character as closely if you had that reaction, or if it seemed like Foggy was completely in the wrong.
0: For um for the issues that we read or reread for this podcast, uh, Justin and I were actually talking before that we got all of the major beats of the plot, but we felt like we did. Make some of the character development for Daredevil himself. And so I think maybe it would have been, the feeling would have been different if we had been along for the ride for all of that. But my interpretation was that what we had seen of Daredevil up to that point included so much self-reflection, like uh, all of his monologue was wondering, like, I I know Foggy thinks that I'm a different person, but this is a decision that I've made. I'm trying to be different from the dark person that I I think that I was. And so it seemed difficult to discount his own judgment of himself, even as he started to do it on his own. Uh, That that actually seemed to me a point in his favor. Like, well, if he is considering the possibility that he's insane, he's definitely not insane Um, so I I wonder maybe the experience would have been different if we had been along for the whole time but it was I think so often it's sort of a trope now in popular culture that is this crazy thing actually happening or is the person insane like Birdman is a good example of that kind of thing appearing recently and it was interesting to be on the other side of that where I was siding with the sort of unreliable protagonist like no you're definitely sane and something weird Mm -hmm. is happening to you and it was refreshing I thought
3: from my perspective I actually read some of these comics when they first came out so unlike you guys i had picked up on the arc and as a result it just reminded me of them i found it very very interesting to ask those questions i read shadowland i really enjoyed some of the shadowland kind of culmination of the darkness of daredevil and i did feel there was a really abrupt tone change when i read mark wade's um take on the character seeing the questions of sanity i did wind up questioning him a little bit what i loved though was just as we started to put the pieces together and realize this is what's going on that's when foggy really steps beyond the bounds and even tells matt's near girlfriend Mm -hmm. the assistant da um that he's concerned for matt's sanity it was brilliantly done from a narrative viewpoint that just as you settled your mind as okay he's not insane. That was the moment that Foggy took it a step too far. Um, Really nice touch. I did love the twists with it, having the spot as the reason for the insanity questions and the way that was played. Really an imaginative use of a character who's always felt like a Z-list supervillain to me.
2: Absolutely.
1: Did you guys agree with Foggy's decision to talk to Matt's uh, almost girlfriend? I mean, in
2: part, I don't because she didn't agree with it. That she sells that moment really well that, you know, are you sure you want to tell me this because the moment you say this to me, uh, I have to do these things. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who works in a field uh, where you are a mandated reporter, I, I could experience those feelings for what she was saying that, like, the moment you cross this line, there's a bunch of stuff that I have to do that I have no choice about. Right. Um, yeah. So you could really feel her conflict and her intensity in that moment, which I really appreciated.
1: I wish, I don't know, I'm sort of torn between uh, both ideas. You know, I want him to be loyal to Matt, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, if he saw Daredevil being a danger and, you know, he felt like he had to do something and had to help his friend. So I kind of see it both ways, but it definitely puts him in a a difficult situation.
2: And from a storytelling perspective and a character perspective, it gives great depth to Foggy. You know, that's something that some writers have done and some writers have struggled with And to see him, in essence, choosing his friend's safety over, you know, knowing that his friend may be angry that he makes this choice, but knowing that or feeling that it's yeah. the best choice, he has to do it, uh, lends a lot of depth to Foggy, which is something that I think Wade does throughout his run, mm. that Foggy's not just this sort of silly
1: sidekick. He really gives Foggy a heart and yes. soul. So a lot of the villains that, that Wade used were pretty new. How do you think they fit in with Daredevil's existing villains? And do you think they were good additions? And how
0: did you like them? It seems like at least, I don't know, a a good chunk of the villains were older ones sort of reimagined in a, a new way or. Yeah, I don't know. And I think that's always fun for a comic book fan to see someone come back. And so in that way, it seems like they did fit, especially with the story that Mark Wade was telling, where. Matt is sort of making this decision To be a different version of himself A more cheerful kind of guy And so you have this journey That he's taking and then at the same time Mark Wade brings back A, a Z-list villain <laughs> As Tom would say and makes him Actually really kind of disturbing And I think that was yeah I kind of like That that you had the, these two Weighted transformations of characters I thought it worked really well
1: I like you,
2: Tim. Yeah I generally agree uh, the bruiser Or bruiser who is a brand new character character was really interesting in that he has a very subtle, I believe he's identified on the page as a mutant. I can't recall. But his superpower is incredibly subtle in that he can just shift his his center of gravity, which is something I love because I've always thought about the X-Men or mutants in general, that there's got to be some that just have sort of simple superpowers. And he does, but he uses it incredibly to his benefit. He's sort of a mercenary type. And Bullseye is one that doesn't, described in general, feels like it wouldn't work. You know, this character who's all about his physicality becoming sort of this mental danger to Daredevil. But Wade really sells it that it becomes he has nothing to use as a weapon anymore except for his mind. So that's what he does because Bullseye can't help but be a living weapon. And as you mentioned, you know, Spot and Coyote, who's related to Spot, becomes this sort of terrifying and really bizarre and natural character in, in in that arc.
1: And it's incredible. It's really, it really sells the action. I like the whole thing with the heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was pretty yeah, cool. That's a terrifying great, visual. Yeah. Uh, Tom, how about you?
3: Bruiser really struck me. I loved the concept of this villain and he made me laugh at the same time as being a real threat. The idea that this guy thinks he's upping himself until he can get ready to take on the Hulk and is doing a web campaign and things like that. I just sat there laughing at those touches that made the character feel really quite human. Mm-hmm. And then when finally Daredevil worked out how his power worked and beat the guy, it was in a really creative way. It was nice to see a superhero effectively out-thinking their enemy. Um, I really loved that touch. That character really impressed me. Um, Along the same lines, though, so many of those characters were really, really striking. Ikari, Mm. fascinating concept. Um, I stumbled across that arc, one issue of it, the issue where it's revealed in the end that Ikari can actually see that was the first issue i'd actually read of that particular arc and i remember it as one that really stuck with me i love that twist at the end when daredevil thinks he's outclassed the guy mm. and he hasn't yeah there's Seeing the hero brought to that point by this guy who has all of his powers but has one extra edge, he doesn't have Matt's disability. That was a really powerful issue.
2: Yeah. Never has a line that's as simple as, try the red one, carried as much dread as in that moment.
3: Absolutely.
2: And you mentioned the humor of the Bruiser. Another thing about Bruiser that's pretty great is that his costume is emblazoned with the various criminal organizations he's worked for, so he's yeah. like a walking
1: NASCAR car and then he's got all the symbols <laughs> on him, which I that was a great touch. That is pretty funny, actually. You were saying, do you have a specific favorite, though, Kathy? Besides-
0: of the villains yeah. that were? Well, I was just thinking, there was some great work, uh on character design i was thinking of what you were saying about the bruiser's costume but also having bullseye in this uh like iron maiden suit where oh, you can't I see that. anything except yeah. his eyes it's really cool very spooky and then also another great example of the sort of balancing and echoing like of course daredevil is blind and then you have this like shape that's nothing but just a slit for eyeballs very mm. cool all
1: right guys that's going to bring us to the end of our second segment and when we come back more on the psychology of daredevil We're back talking about Daredevil, talking about his psychology, and getting into a little bit of method acting here, because as I was just explaining to everyone for like the third time now, as I was saying, when I was back in acting school, the director and acting coach used to always talk about the psychosis of the character and would ask us after sort of the really intense scenes that we would do, what the psychosis of the character was and would tell us to go deeper into the psychosis of the character. So talking from, what is the, and does she know what she's talking about? There is no connection between the psychosis she's talking about and actual psychology, is there? Given the brief description
2: you gave us, uh, she seems to be using psychosis as sort of a, a catch-all term for what are the flaws, the wounds, you know, what's driving the character right. internally. You know, In tragedies, it's the fatal flaw. In our day-to-day lives, it's any number of things. It could be real mental illness. It could be trauma. It could be just the, the little things that get to us in
1: different ways, our brains, right. if you will. Do you think that Daredevil's tragic flaw is that he's blind?
2: Um, no, actually. I think his tragic flaws, I think blindness actually doesn't play into it. Um, His tragic flaws, at times, is his own arrogance. He is often one step ahead of everyone, but he's not always one step ahead of everyone, and that can trip him up. His inability, or his sort of, he'll double down when he's in a situation. So, what you saw a lot during the Bendis run and the Brubaker run and then the Diggle run was him increasingly getting painted into a corner regarding his identity and refusing to change his plan to just continue to deny, deny, deny. And Wade takes that and flips that on its ear. That first scene in the first issue where he's talking to, I think it's the coffee cart guy, and he's asking him what it feels like to be Daredevil, and Matt just keeps sort of flippantly saying, well, I wouldn't know I'm not Daredevil. But that idea that he just couldn't let go of the identity at that time, and you know, as I said before, Wade introduces a kind of a different take on that. That is a fatal flaw, I think, for or not fatal, but certainly a dangerous flaw for Daredevil. And I don't know if it's a flaw per se, but one of the things that you see shot through a lot of Daredevil stories is his complicated relationships towards women, which begins with uh, Uh, His mother, who it's never been outright stated, but it's often implied that she's Maggie, the nun who works in the local cathedral who left his father to become a nun is the implication of that. And goes through, Uh, unfortunately, he has a history of several of his girlfriends or ex-girlfriends losing their lives. Mila or Mila, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. Uh, His wife is depicted in one of the uh, issues because she's in a mental institution. She just, the strain of being um, Daredevil's wife was too much for her. Karen Page was rather famously killed during Kevin Smith's arc on the title. Uh, He had a girlfriend who actually also dated Foggy for a time and committed suicide. So it's not specifically a flaw of his, but in terms of his psychology, it's a, a very big burden, this sort of dangerous and complex relationship he has with women, which doesn't even get to Electra or Typhoid
1: Mary, which is also fits right. in with that. Something else that we should talk about in method acting was the need of the character. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering what you guys thought Matt Murdoch's need is, and I remember the the coach at the time describing it as, what's requisite to him as a human being, to him as an organism, in order to survive? Hmm. So I was just curious if you guys had any thoughts on that. I don't want to keep dominating the conversation.
2: Two method acting, two method No, acting? no. I just don't want keep down in the conversation <laughs>
0: I think it's a it's a difficult question like I, I was thinking about it while you were asking I'm not sure that I, I came up with anything at least in the issues we read it seems like control sort of has something to I was do with say it. That,
1: if <laughs>
0: I was yeah okay because I, I was trying to think of like moments when we saw him do something unexpected and uh, when he was on his way to see the person who was erroneously fired and uh, talking about how he doesn't make appointments and he doesn't make dates because he never knows when he's going to be sidelined by something else on his way to wherever the appointment is. And that seems like an expression of just being totally whipped around by his need to fix things as they come up. And so control, I think, is maybe the best that I could come up with in the five seconds I was thinking about (laughs) it while you asked the question.
1: Well, no, I would argue that the control is what makes him unafraid. And that's why he needs to hold on to it. Mm -hmm.
2: What about you, Tim? What do you think? I do think control is a big part of it, which, again, clicks back with his sort of obsessive need to maintain his identity uh, against all evidence that it was lost to him. I also think one that gets brought up a lot, not so much in the Wade run, but certainly in Man Without Fear and other titles, is that divide between his desire to honor his father by not fighting, by becoming a man of the law, and his desire to see justice done by putting on the costume uh, and fighting back against the bullies that, you know, not literally the bullies that terrorized his life, but those kinds of people. Those are two big needs for him as well. And you could also point to them as flaws because they are in Inherently uh, oppositional to one another. Right. to honor one is to betray the other.
1: Uh, Tom, did you want to
3: chime in? I think justice is a big part of him um, because both of his identities are different angles at the same concept. Matt Murdock, the lawyer pursuing justice, daredevil, The vigilante pursuing justice outside of the legal system has his own definition of what justice means. So he doesn't strictly go by what the legal system says justice is, which is why he can intertwine the vigilanteism and the legal side of it. But I think that that idea of justice is really quite core to him. Um, I think that's what drives him in a way, that need to see justice done, and that feeling that if there is injustice, he should be the one making a difference. And it's quite a powerful motive to rest upon one person that, that one, I think.
1: And what about his public persona? Uh, how do you think he wants the world to see him? Some heavy uh, questions for the comments, <laughs> first of the comments for podcast. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, in a perfect world, he wants the world to see him as the blind lawyer from Hell's Kitchen and nothing more. And he wants Daredevil to be seen as a crusader for justice, and he wants them not to be linked at all. Um, but he doesn't exist in a perfect world, so he doesn't have that. I think that's part of at the depth of him is that he doesn't necessarily know exactly how he wants to be seen, because he's not entirely sure how he sees himself. He doesn't know if he's more the lawyer or more the vigilante, and that's a constant tension for him. Tom?
3: I think there's an interesting touch in this run that I felt subtly redefined the character, because I always remember when Brian Bendis launched the new Avengers and Daredevil was on the raft during the prison break. Captain America asked him to be part of the Avengers at that time, and he was like, you don't want me. And it felt very much like Daredevil at that time was trying to create himself a persona that was separate from the rest of the world, the rest of the superhero community then at the end of that battle with bullseye when he's called on a few friends to me there was quite a dramatic character shift at that moment it conflicted dramatically there with that earlier scene because he knows that he doesn't stand alone and then when i started thinking back all the way through wade's run his calling on friends his contacting ant-man for technical help yeah. and that was something that really felt quite fresh and quite original so i think that there's an aspect of daredevil's view of himself that's changed a little over the years and um, Um, that somehow he's realized that he's part of a wider world, that it isn't just about him anymore. And that possibly shapes a little how he wants himself to be seen. So now he wants to be seen actually as one of the good guys, not just as the champion for justice who stands on his own. Um, I think that's quite an interesting subtle bit of redefinition going on there.
0: I'm not sure what to add. I was thinking that I liked Tim's point earlier and then I had a specific thought and then it disappeared from my brain forever. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> I remember.
2: You remember just now? Yeah, I remember.
0: <laughs> well, I, I liked Tim's point earlier that he thinks that Matt and Daredevil are still thinking about who he is, hasn't decided what his identity is yet. And I think one of the fun things that we saw in the issues by my way that we read for this podcast was Matt sort of getting a a kick out of the denial of being Daredevil. He got to have both have his his superhero cake and eat it too, especially the scene where he's with Foggy in the bar and trying to decide if he's going to admit to being Daredevil in order to more successfully flirt with the two women. But it's always fun because I think as kids reading superheroes, you definitely have the moment like, oh, I'd want everyone to know. I would tell everyone that I'm Batman all the time. Why (laughs) wouldn't I, why would I want to keep that to myself? And something about it seems really appealing and really also immature to (laughs) to play with those high stakes, but definitely a lot of fun. Even a a future podcast when we discuss Spider Woman, she references meeting the journalist at one of Matt Murdock's I Am Not Daredevil parties. And uh, (laughs) it's a fun thing to come back to. I liked that part of his character.
1: Oh, that's very much okay. (laughs) We actually have to take a break now, but when we come back, we are going to get into even more of his psychology and we're going to talk a little bit about his past and how his relationship with his father affects him so more about that when we come back so Daredevil's psychology is so interesting that we need two whole segments on it and let's talk a little bit about his relationship with his father because it comes into play several times in the issues that we read Mm -hmm. and tom did you want to just give in your overall sense about his relationship with his father no, you don't.
3: I would, but my man's gone blank, I'm afraid, Justin. Sorry.
1: <laughs> Anyone else, Tim? Sure.
2: So, Matt Murdock grew up in a single father household, or a single parent household, that being his dad. And his dad uh, was a boxer, and also a bit of a low-level leg breaker. Not actually unlike, if you guys are familiar with the Rocky films, what Rocky's doing in the first Rocky movie. And the thing he makes Matt promise over and over again is that he won't settle his problems with his fists. He'll use his brain instead, and which is why Matt goes on to become an attorney and so on. But... But he is his father's son in a lot of ways, and there are moments where he does settle his problems with his fists, and that carries into adult life as well. And that, coupled with the toxic waste that blinds him, is what leads to Daredevil. His father's someone he greatly admires, and... One gets a the feeling there are moments where he's disappointed that he couldn't live up to the promise that he gave his father. Um, but there's also a rush in emulating his father's path. He has the physicality that his
1: dad had that he admired right. as a kid. There's something to be said, I think, about the fact that, you know, you've got this blue-collar guy. Oh, my God, I, I'm drawing a blank on the father's name. It's just an awesome Jack. Badling Jack, Jack, yeah. And, you know, he really pushed his son to be something that the father is not, mm-hmm. this educated sort of person. And I guess what I wanted to ask is, what sort of effect do this have on Matt, the child, and Matt, the adult, but the father is prodding him into this position?
2: Well, I mean, the obvious part is that he does go on to become a yes. lawyer, and he becomes, for all intents and purposes, uh, what's constantly portrayed as a very good attorney. He knows the law, and he's very good at using it to achieve his ends. But at the same time, time again there is a bit of and not so much in the Wade run but you'll see it again to echo man without fear there's a almost a resentment of not being able to use his physical skills Um, he comes home at one point and tells his father that he got in a fight and he he hit the kid and he knocked him down and he like he finally stopped the bullying for a moment and his father becomes incredibly angry and I think actually he hits him for the first and only time yes and it's an incredibly shocking moment for Matt if his dad can be bad if his dad can make a mistake anybody can so you know it, it drove him to become an attorney but there's also this sort of underlying resentment towards his father that there's an aspect of Matt that he told him over and over again to deny, to, uh, to push down, which I think is a risk for any parent that, you know, you want the best for your child, but it's not always clear what exactly that is. And even though solving problems with fists was a dead end for Jack, uh, it didn't necessarily have to be for Matt.
3: I think it's an interesting touch with parenthood because so many parents think I don't want my kid to be like me Mm -hmm. but is your child and carries some of your traits and your better skills and just because those are things that haven't served you well as a parent doesn't mean your kid won't be able to turn them into something good. Um, So I think it's quite an interesting parent-child thing there that's quite well done, quite nuanced.
2: And, And there are hints too that they in some ways bring out the best in one another. You know What ends up ultimately killing Jack is his refusal to throw a, a fight. And yeah. part of the reason he does that is because he knows Matt's in the audience and he thinks it's important for Matt to see his dad not fall, his dad not cheat essentially. And so in a lot of ways Matt is not just like his dad in that he is a physical man who occasionally uses his fists to fix problems or try to fix problems, um, but also that they are both very flawed and yet very moral people who constantly fail to always achieve their morals, but nonetheless redouble their efforts to do so. And that's a a piece that uh, i really like about their relationship that you know there's the obvious element to their sameness but there's also this underlying commitment to these values that they'll inevitably fail to meet but nonetheless they strive for
0: i do i really like that their relationship is defined by matt's father's presence in his childhood i think it's easy for dramatic characters to make them orphans or to make them someone that their parents have abandoned and then there's they're fueled mostly by negative emotions by just resenting their parents. Um, And that's an easy way to, uh, I think, explain violence that the person punches people because they hate their mom or dad. And so I think this is actually a really uh, nuanced way to look at violence, that it's actually uh, people struggling with strength. And when is the right time to use strength? And if you have a talent for it, as Matt does, is it something that you should necessarily avoid? And I was also thinking that I really love, like Justin was saying before, that he's such a, a cool New Yorkie character, like a, a blue collar, bare knuckle boxer, um, a real uh, quintessential old Hell's Kitchen kind of figure.
1: So I was thinking about this before, and I think when you compare what we read to you, sort of landmark comics like The Dark Knight Returns and Craven's Last Hunt, and I'm just curious what you guys think about this, but so many superheroes like Batman are... Truly themselves when they are wearing the mask. Mm -hmm. The mask for Batman is Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Daredevil, I really think he's Matt Murdock and that wearing the mask makes him this vigilante character who he's not in his everyday life. And uh, I was just curious what you guys thought about that. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think that Daredevil is the real Matt Murdock versus his secret identity persona? Anyone first?
0: I think it's, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what the people who have thought more about this would have to say, but just my sort of uh, shallow impression, uh, they seem like two really different people. And I don't know if this would bear out if I went back and more closely examined the issues that we read, but I feel like we see more of Matt's cool sort of radar ability when he's Daredevil. Like, uh, I guess there was a scene where he was at a a party and he was using it to almost uh, pick up a bottle uh, in a convincing way. But those scenes where he's mad are usually more external. So you definitely at least in these issues get the impression that they're two different people because you're often seeing the worlds from different views when you're following each person that's pretty uncommon that it's a different kind of like it's superhero view and person view depending on what outfit the person is wearing but as I'm saying that I'm realizing that like Matt was also always wearing the Daredevil costume underneath his clothes so I think it's a really yes. complicated question to answer
3: yeah to me I almost feel as though both the Matt Murdoch identity and the Daredevil identity are sort of like windows into a single person and it's a bit different to some of the other superheroes as you said justin um with batman batman is his real identity you want to get to grips with who that guy is you look at the mask and you look at the cape and the cow with daredevil I don't think you can actually say that either one of those is the definitive person. I think they're literally two parts of the same person. And I don't think it's like an unhealthy multiple personality disorder or anything like that. Just it's a refreshingly realistic complex person. People are never so simple as here's what you see in front of you is their definitive truth of themselves. Every person is a slightly different kind of person in a different context. Now with Matt Murdock, the two dramatically different contexts, but it just feels much more organic, much more real and earthed than a lot of superheroes with secret identities to me. yeah,
2: I mean, to take a complex thing and to boil it down, more simple thing, there's work you, there's you with certain members of your friends, there's you with other friends, there's you by yourself and all of those are you definitively but you highlight or downplay different aspects because of the venue and something to loop back to the dad that's interesting to consider is if his dad hadn't pushed him so much to avoid the physicality part of himself do we end up with two distinct portions of the whole or is Matt Murdoch somebody who can be the smart lawyer who also has the freedom to indulge in that physical aspect and of course there's no answer because he did push him to avoid it but you know Daredevil represents a certain freedom for him to to indulge in some aspects that he can't as matt murdoch and matt murdoch re- represents a certain stability that daredevil doesn't have but
1: as you both alluded to they're parts of a whole all right guys that does it for this segment we have one more segment after this in which we're going to ask tim to give a little psychoanalysis of daredevil so okay. we're really looking forward to that and then we're going to talk about the end of uh wade's last arc is it uh heading into it yeah. heading into it yeah all right so we'll be right back after this all right so we are in our final segment of today's podcast discussing daredevil and now that we're at the end i'd like to ask tim who's getting his um or as a PsyD, how would you psychoanalyze matt murdoch uh
2: well i mean it depends why he came in obviously but in sort of broad terms in the mark wade run um, what you see a lot of is him shedding old defense mechanisms for new ones and defense mechanisms has sort of a negative connotation to it but it doesn't have to you know we all use things in our day-to-day lives to protect Ourselves. Except Tom Beacon. Right. (laughs) To protect ourselves from negative uh, stimuli or things that we don't uh, can't process in the moment and so on. Mm -hmm. And often those techniques follow us throughout our lives. And often what once worked when you were a child isn't as good as Mm -hmm. an adult. You know, for instance, if you grew up in an abusive household, when you were a kid and Let's say your father was abusive and he drank and you knew that's when you might get hit. Running away was a perfectly acceptable alternative at that point. However, as an adult, running away is not a acceptable way to live through your life. And so I think we see that with Matt and the Wade run is that he has reached the end of his ability to use those old techniques, to simply punch harder to solve the problem, to simply pretend it doesn't exist, to deny the fact that his identity is out there. And in Volume 3, we see a whole new set of techniques which are in part defense mechanisms and kind of freak out foggy because he's not used to this version of Matt or this approach that Matt's taking. But in a lot of ways, we see how much more successful they are. You you talked about, Kathy, you talked about Matt seems fun. He seems cool. He is flirting with these women at the bar and thinking about, well, do I want to tell them? Do I not want to tell them? And I mentioned the coffee guy earlier. You know, he denies it to the coffee guy, but he's very sort of cavalier about it. He's not really worried if the coffee guy believes him or not. So it's interesting to see a character that has made a big switch in his own inner psychology. And it's also interesting, as I said, to see the people around him, how they react to it. You know, Foggy doesn't like depressed Matt, but there's an aspect of him that trusts it because he knows that Matt and this new Matt freaks him out because he doesn't know him so even though he prefers a happy Matt as a human being as this guy who has gotten to know his best friend in this context he can't process him that way
1: right when he sort of uh, walked away from that fight with Akari Mm-hmm. Sort of reminded me of what you were saying about he would um, might run away from stuff with his dad. Mm-hmm. But it was so interesting for me to see a man without fear so afraid. And I mm. think that's what made that really, really work. And
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, he was a particularly cool and terrifying threat for Daredevil. And I guess I wanted to ask what makes him so effective?
2: just being a carry Mm -hmm. okay well part of what makes him so effective is that as Tom alluded to earlier he has all of Matt's abilities and none of his disabilities so he has the radar sense but he's not blind as well as there's sort of subtle things about it you know he wears one of Matt's dad's old robes and given the nature of Matt's senses he can still sense and that way feel his father's presence on that robe even though it's years in the past he wears a modified version of Matt's costume uh, original costume the yellow and red one or the yellow and brown, depending on the coloring, um, which Matt can't really see. But it still goes to show that Akiri is very dedicated to this sort of psychological attack as well as the physical. You contrast their weapons. Matt uses the billy club, which splits into sections. Akiri uses bladed weapons, which are far more about not just yeah. hurting a person, but like, you know, moving towards killing them mm-hmm. than Matt's are. Um, so he is everything Matt is just slightly turned up uh, and obviously on the other side of the fence.
1: Right. I thought that was so messed up how he wore the father's. Yeah. was that? One of his old boxing Last thing, yeah. Wow. Talk about psychological warfare. That was mm-hmm. really intense. Yeah. Tom, what did you think? Did you think he was an effective villain?
3: Oh, I definitely did. To me, it was that single issue where Matt first encountered him, where they were battling it out, and at the very end when Matt realizes this guy can see as well, that was one of the most chilling issues I've read in a long while. Um I love seeing my heroes push to the edge of their limit. And that's very much what I felt was going on with Daredevil, that this guy had been almost well, not almost, he'd been created just to push. Daredevil. That was his sole reason to be. And everything about him had been shaped and designed by Bullseye as a weapon against Daredevil. Um, It was perfectly in keeping with the theme of Bullseye being the villain, because the ultimate killer knows exactly what weapon to go for. And when the ultimate killer has you in his crosshairs, he designs his weapon with real precision to do as much damage as possible. And that's what he was to me, Akaru. He was the ultimate anti-Daredevil tool really. Um, Literally designed to push Matt Murdock to his limits and beyond and leave him realising I don't know what to do now brilliant stroke brilliant move from Wade and a really cool touch for Bullseye too. Kathy,
0: what do you think? I thought of him more as uh, one of the tools that Bullseye was using. If you think about uh, Daredevil's superhero persona, he has like the physical superpowers that come from radiation, and he also has this persona of being the Man Without Fear, which actually isn't really related to his powers. It's sort of a separate thing. Mm. And so I'm thinking that the way this worked was that Bullseye was targeting Daredevil's ability to be the Man Without Fear. And I think that that is really defeated finally when we see all of Matt's friends in danger. And that yes. was really, I think, what the final stroke was, was because, uh, of course, Kiryu was strong enough to have killed Daredevil when he had him there. And so he had defeated all of his superhero uh, abilities, his physical strength and his heightened senses. And then finally, the the last thing that he had left was this ability to be the man without fear. And so uh, I really like Kiryu... It grew more as a tool that Bullseye was using to take down the two sides of Daredevil's superhero persona.
1: Mm. All right. So let's talk about Bullseye because you brought him up and before. And it was totally eerie, I thought. the yeah, way Very they, spooky. Were, yeah. Because you didn't know who it was. Yeah, at really cool. Yeah. I, I was like, who's in the urn? You know, mm-hmm. I just didn't know. I thought it was like Urn Man or something. <laughs> I just was just like, so confused. So... In closing, I guess I wanted to get your guys' final thoughts on Bullseye as a villain and the arc as a whole.
0: I want to chime in real quickly about Bullseye the villain. I think it's not too often that you really recognize the things that the letterer is doing, but I thought that Bullseye's speech pattern was so spooky and so well done, the way he he paused in between yeah. every word and the, the double dashes in between each thing. And like each bubble was balanced really well so that you were getting a sense of like how slowly the words are coming out. And I just really yeah. liked that part of the character.
2: And and the lettering in general in that arc is incredible. There's that scene where the man visits Matt at the office. He says he's there to help out. Oh, I love that. And Matt eventually chases him into the elevator because he's so freaked out. And it seems like he just accosted this guy. He, He shouldn't. And then as the elevator doors close, he says something about, oh, Akiri will like this. But the elevator doors partially cut the word balloon which is this yes. great effect that like y- you're kind of hearing it muffled through this door as right. it closes yeah.
1: it was Joe Kamrogna right uh, yes who yeah. does the lettering yeah. and Tom just did a, an amazing interview with him
3: absolutely and this I've got to say I'll be passing on um, probably dropping him an email actually in light of having read this because he's so impressed me with the work he's done with this really stands out so I think he deserves the praise for it
2: yeah and in general I mean,
3: um, that scene with sorry. that guy with the uh, balloon cut off that stood out to me as well um that was just a moment when i sat up and was like okay that's creepy <laughs> that's cool and then by the time Daredevil's got down to the fire he's gone mm-hmm. superb touch the whole scene was so well done and as kathy says the lettering just complemented it really well it's not often that you sit and you read and you think wow everything is in sync on that scene mm-hmm. but really impressed with it
2: yeah and and just to sort of give credit to everybody um, you know we've talked a lot about wade but for me i love the art and the issues we read from the coloring to the penciling to the inking i just and the lettering now we've talked about as well i think everything works together wonderfully the effect the the sort of reinterpretation of his radar sense not the power itself but the way it's depicted on the page is really interesting in the new volume and i really enjoyed that interpretation and just facial expressions top to bottom the artist is as good as anything out there but also a very different approach for the character.
1: And yet it still works. All right, guys, we are running out of time. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say Matt Murdock and we are each going to say one word that we think describes him. Okay. So Matt Murdock. Kathy, you go.
0: Glasses. Right? (laughs) Just one word?
1: (laughs) What did you say? She said glasses. (laughs) Uh, Tom, how about you?
3: Justice. Justice.
1: Tim, driven and I would say conflicted hmm. nice for the record Tom wins though justice <laughs> is the right
2: answer
1: <laughs> 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 all right guys that's going to do it for this episode of the comics first podcast and just a reminder you can find us on the web at comicsfirst.com, on Facebook facebook.com slash comics first on Twitter at at comics first YouTube at youtube.com slash comics first TV and again a reminder to check out our video reviews and all the videos on our website and this podcast is going to be on comicsfirst.com slash podcast so please don't miss it and stay tuned for our next episode where um, Tim will be our guest again and we have a very special announcement to make that we're really excited about and uh, we'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye guys.